Hello and welcome to the Venture Forth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavadivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. On today's show, I'm very lucky to welcome Mike Jones, the co-founder and CEO of Science Inc. Science Inc. incubates, invests in, and scales early-stage startups like MeUndies, Mammoth Media, Flutter, as well as my friends at Ernie. Science is also one of America's most successful incubators, with exits including Delicious, Dog Vacay, and Dollar Shave Club, which was acquired by Unilever for $1 billion in 2016. If my memory serves me, I first met Mike at the Twist Up Startup Show-Off way back in 2007 when I was working at GUI Media. Back then, he was the founder and CEO of Userplane, a hosted social discovery platform providing white-labeled messenger services to businesses. Since then, he's held top leadership roles at AOL, Sava Media, and was even the CEO of MySpace overseeing the turnaround of the business before going on to found Science Inc. Science Inc. recently announced a new kind of incubator for blockchain startups. It's funded by an initial coin offering, or ICO. ICOs are a new way for companies to raise money by selling their own digital currency, kind of like how public companies sell stocks. And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mike to the show. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. And, and those are some, uh, those are some uh, good old references. I forgot about Twist Up. That was quite a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got loads of questions about the ICO, but I'd love to start off with a brief history of your origins in the startup business and, and how your journey in tech led to what you're doing uh, at Science Today. Sure. So, you know, I was a, I was an early entrepreneur starting companies kind of, as you imagine, with, with many little entrepreneurs in, in, in high school. And then I started kind of my first official company in college. Um, that company continued to grow post-college and I moved it down to Los Angeles. Um, a few years after founding that company, I sold it to a partner and went on to build Userplane, the company that you mentioned. Um, Let's see. So at Userplane, we were on a kind of five-year, four-year journey with creating a software platform. And uh, although we started as kind of a lightweight consulting company, we eventually built our own system. And that system was used by lots of early-stage social networks and, and communities. And uh, and I was very fortunate in that at one point, uh, AOL decided they wanted to buy that company. So we sold that company. Um, after that, I became a really active angel investor because I was one of the few individuals in Los Angeles that was um, uh, available and easy to talk to and easy to reach and talked a lot about building and selling technology companies. Um, in doing that, I participated in uh, some businesses like Maker Studios and Goodreads and GumGum and DocStock and a bunch of interesting LA startups that some went off to go sell. Um, I worked in private equity for a spell and then, as you mentioned, I was, I was eventually hired to be the CEO of MySpace after, um, after News Corp acquired it and worked there for three years while we tried to kind of recover and, and regrow MySpace, which was very, very difficult. And, uh, and after that experience in, in selling MySpace, I went, off to, uh, I went off to found science with a group of partners. Awesome. So what is Science Inc. and what makes science different from other incubators, accelerators, and studios like, I guess, the Expas and the Atomics and, or even Rocket Internets of the world? Sure. So, you know, science is a, is a kind of very early strategic and often operational partner to startups. So we look for founders um, that are interested in sectors we're very interested in. We typically partner with them. We, um, we use our team to complement their team at the earliest stages. 
We're heavily involved in strategy, uh, in growth strategy, in financing, in structure. And, uh, you know, and then we typically stay involved and on the board of these companies as they grow and scale. And, uh, you know, yeah, we were fortunate with, uh, with Dollar Shave Club for sure and a company called Famebit and Hello Society, all of which uh, were acquired last year. But beyond that, we have a portfolio of around 60, 60 or so companies that are typically in the either kind of commerce, marketplace or mobile or now crypto space that we stay heavily involved in. And we like to work shoulder and shoulder with those CEOs and founding teams to make their companies successful. Uh, Dory Yona is one of the founders of Ernie and, and a portfolio company, and uh, he's a friend of mine and recently on the podcast, they're building an awesome business with you guys. How do you decide on what companies to work with and what qualities about the founders or business makes you choose one company over others? So, you know, first off is I, I, I think we need to focus on what we're, what we're good at. And, um, you know, right now I'd say that we're particularly good and interested at, at mass audience consumer products and services. Um, I think we're, I think it's, it's a unique skill set for us. I think that we are some of the best people you can work with as far as mass level audience marketing. And so I look for things that, that fit that profile. Second to that, I'm looking for founders that I get along with that have certain qualities that I think make great founders. And I've been fortunate to work with both great and uh, sometimes not so great founders. And so I have a view of what I think drives strong, successful founders. So I also obviously look for that. You know, and then I look for things that, um, you know, that we often have deep knowledge in the space. So we may understand mass audience, but maybe we also know a lot of people in media or fintech or commerce so that we also have strategic relationships that can benefit those companies over time. And when those things come together and we find the right team and the right company, we, we engage in this kind of incubation relationship, which is both us contributing time and resources, but also capital, you know, into the business. The, the Southern California startup ecosystem has been really booming over the last few years with Science Inc. Uh, leading the way. Is SoCal replicating Silicon Valley's success or, or is it creating its own unique ecosystem? Uh, so I think that, you know, I think the success of companies in Southern California drives more hopefully successful Southern California companies. Similar is when, you know, I sold my company to AOL, I used that capital to then invest in other startups here, typically in L.A., so, you know, as these early stage companies go off and have success, it, it should create a greater uh, ecosystem of technology driven startups. Now, you have a few things, though, that are that are limiters. So one is that, you know, um, Silicon Valley still contains the majority of venture capital. So we rely on our Silicon Valley partners for almost all of our venture raises. And then you have this new thing in this uh, kind of blockchain ICO space where you have a potential new methodology upon which to finance the growth and development of these companies that is a lot less restrictive to the Silicon Valley um, geography. So those are two things that I keep in mind. So I guess I just want to take a, a quick step back. I mean, I think that many people may still, I mean, inside and outside the Valley and all over the world, I think many people may still be a little bit confused about what cryptocurrencies are, the blockchain, ICOs, etc., like how they work and why they're important. Could, can you uh, give a brief explanation on the subject? Well, sure. Um, and, you know, I, I've used this example before, and I think it's an easy one. Imagine we all just um, designed the domain name system. And uh, we need to buy and build a whole bunch of infrastructure to support the use of these domain names. So what we do is we go and sell these domain names to a large population of individuals who may be buying them because they're going to speculate on their future value, right? And then we use the capital from that sale of domain names to further grow our domain name 
infrastructure to support this growing use of our domain names. That's probably the most logical way to think about how ICOs to date kind of have been designed in that somebody creates a technology and that technology has a component that is limited and transferable, similar to a domain name. And they sell access to these limited and transferable digital objects in order to finance the growth of that company. That is a great use of tokenization. Now, what I would say today is a lot of people aren't doing that. A lot of people have manipulated that system in order to use the ICO as a funding vehicle, but it may not have as natural of a purpose or method as the one I just described. Definitely. So, I mean, Science had previously raised money uh, the old-fashioned way, as you kind of mentioned, but recently announced the, the Science Blockchain ICO. So what motivated you, or perhaps, I guess, phrased another way, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of going the ICO route versus a traditional fund? So, yeah, so if you think to yourself, like, you need to finance the growth of your company, and, uh, you know, you typically would fly up to Silicon Valley and meet with maybe one of a hundred or a few of a hundred different dedicated early-stage investors, and you would go through this very specific process, you know, that works for some companies, but it doesn't work for a lot of companies, right? On the flip side, you now have this potential opportunity to ICO. And what that essentially means is that you're going to develop, you know, you're going to develop a product that uses some level of a tokenization um, and you're going to pre-sell or you're going to actively sell those tokens to people that are probably already holding cryptocurrency. Now, you know, what that first, one of the first credentials right now is this really seems to work best if your company is also very committed in the cryptocurrency space. So we have yet to see highly successful ICOs for companies that are not doing blockchain-enabled technology. Now, that's not to say that that won't happen. I'm just saying that has not quite happened as, you know, yet. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that, you know, although the ICO route looks highly favorable because right now you see a lot of very early stage companies doing very large raises through these or large pre-sales through these ICOs, I might note that, you know, first off is the SEC um, has been very unclear on whether these things are securities or not. And that has to play into your calculation if you want to do an ICO. Um, the second thing is, is that although we read about a lot of very successful ICOs, there's a lot of ICOs that don't become highly successful. The third piece is ICOs are extremely uh, expensive to run and fairly complicated in nature, especially if you want to do it in some level of compliance of U.S. law. Um, so they're not quite as easy as they seem, but if you are successful at doing it, in essence, you have pre-sold a token that hopefully has some level of utility the day you sell it, and you can use that capital to further the growth of your company. Interesting. So Science is uh, holding its own ICO, and... On the first episode of Harry Stebbings' 20-Minute VC back in August of 2015, about two years ago, you mentioned that venture capital is the primary driver of growth in the tech scene. So how will ICOs like Science Inc. change VCs' role in the growth of startups? I think that from a broad level view, one thing that's beautiful today about what's happening, but dangerous but beautiful, is that you have you know hundreds of millions to billions of dollars flowing into early stage technology startups hands and it's global. So investors in different places of the world that didn't have access to Silicon Valley deal flow suddenly can get access to early stage technology companies 
And technology companies that weren't able to or didn't desire to raise equity from Silicon Valley or traditional VCs now have an alternative fundraising path. Now, what we all should be hopeful for, hopeful of is that these companies that raise these monies through or sell these tokens through an ICO and use those proceeds to grow their business, that they're actually successful in growing their business. And that'd be very exciting. You know, we, I think we need to recognize that a bunch of them, similar to venture capital, will not be successful at growing their business. And there's a big question of what happens if that goes on, right? But so as far as the way the traditional VC, I think, should be concerned, um, realize that, you know, the venture capital industry, and I put myself in that industry as well, we maintain relationships with a lot of very qualified traditional LPs, large investors, and those large investors allocate a portion of their capital to venture because they want high risk potentially high return, you know, in, in my case, the technology sector. Those investors will still have a desire to have high risk and high return, potentially in the technology sector as it relates to crypto. There will still be, regardless of whether those companies raise money through venture or through ICOs, a high rate of failure because startups just have a high rate of failure. There will still be a need for equity capital. So venture capital will still have a high degree of relevance for these technology startups because at times they will not be able to solely fund through an ICO and they may need equity dollars. Um, another thing to notice, ICOs are expensive to run and so you will need capital to get through the ICO process. Um, so I don't think this negates the need for venture capital by any means. One thing it may actually do is increase the amount of deals that venture capitalists may look at because now they're not just looking at deals that float through Silicon Valley or float through LA and end up on my desk, but they might be now looking at a global portfolio of startups in technology that are raising capital through equity and through ICOs. And those VCs may choose to participate and those ICOs may also need their dollars to develop their technology. So this may be a secondary funding path. It may be something that's highly relevant to later stage companies. It may be something that's highly relevant to global investors that want exposure. Um, it is all carrying a substantial amount of risk because of the nature of startups, but I don't think it decreases the relevancy of venture capital. So I think the science ICO goal is about $100 million. How do you go about establishing how many tokens um, you're going to issue and, and at what price? And, and ultimately, like, what do those tokens represent? So, yes, we're using a very different uh, ICO structure. We're doing it as a uh, exemption, uh, a reg D exemption, which is a part of the crowd, the crowd sale um, structure. We're selling our tokens, which gives you access to um, the future token value and future equity value of companies that get invested in or incubated by science. So we're handling this very much like the way we handled a traditional incubator where we raised capital from LPs investors, but in this case, we're doing it through an ICO. The, the way we're architecting the token and the token distribution, we're taking a lot of um, keys from Argon, which is the banking group that we're working with on the uh, ICO. And, um, and they're doing kind of a best of breed structure with us that's as compliant as possible with the current kind of Reg D exemption. Um, and as you mentioned, we haven't really announced our hard cap because we're still sorting through where we want to put that hard cap. But, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we can raise a substantial amount of capital that we'll be able to use to build great companies in the crypto space. 
So uh, you mentioned that uh, you want to build big, great companies in the crypto space. Will the fund resources be used strictly to invest in, in other companies that want to build crypto-related companies or ICO themselves? Um, essentially, yes. Now, unlike a venture fund, an incubator often becomes you know, a, uh, an, an operational participant in those companies. So we will both invest and incubate. Uh, and work with those early stage partners and founders on on their vision the same way that we did through um, the original science uh, incubator vehicle. So I have a question actually specifically about valuing the startups and the companies that do ICO. So let's say uh, a VC um, invests in a, an early stage company at let's say like a $10 million valuation. If that company goes on to raise um, 50 or $100 million or, or whatever amount in an ICO with you know, let's say a $300 million token market cap, how do you value the, the company now? Like, what is, is that a $300 million company? Is it still a $10 million company? I, I'm, I'm really curious about how one valuates that. Yeah, uh, so, by the way, that's an, that's an incredibly insightful question. Um, so, for instance, this morning, I sat down with an investor who had an equity investment in a company that uh, did an ICO a few years after they did their equity investment. They have an interesting problem. The, the ICO raised about $35 million. They now have a token market cap of $200 million. They sit on undistributed tokens that maybe, let's say, account for $100 million of future value if the price held. They have some interest from buyers to acquire the company. Now... What no one knows, to your point, is do the buyers of the company have to, A, buy out current token holders, B, do they value the tokens sitting on the balance sheet of the company at the current market price of those tokens, C, should you be distributing those undistributed tokens to the shareholders of the company? And here's the quick answer. No one knows. I have not seen a standard practice here yet. Someone will, um, but there is a natural conflict right now between equity holders, token holders, and management, and potential and and potentially an M and A partner that does need to get sorted through because there are certainly companies that have different equity holders and those equity holders ownership levels do not match their token distribution, and I think we all need to figure that out. And it's critical if these companies ever want to get acquired. Um, to to play, you know, you mentioned uh, that there's something on the order of like one ICO or, or more occurring every day, uh, and there's enormous demand. There's a huge and fast moving price inflations of these things. Oftentimes, are we are we experiencing a crypto bubble? I mean, we're we're certainly seeing an incredible and in somewhat insane rise in the crypto market cap. We do have to acknowledge that this is a global. Phenomenon. So, whereas when we saw the original dot com bubble, um, I don't think we had the same global footprint of international investors, large and small, pouring dollars into the market for a variety of re- different reasons than what we see within the, the ICO and the overall crypto market. Right. So you have you have a substantial amount of value flowing from countries that are not in the U.S countries where they might have high volatility on their currency or high volatility on their banking system, and they're choosing to put those dollars into crypto. 
Um, they're also choosing to put a portion of the dollars into high-risk ICOs. So I do believe we're seeing an unprecedented spike in value. Because I don't have a perspective yet on how big the global market is for digital fiat and digital investments, um, it's hard to know right now how big this should be. Um, I do, though, believe that as a traditional startup operator, entrepreneur, and investor, we can expect that a large portion of the companies that are pre-release raising substantial dollars through ICOs will potentially not be successful and the value of those tokens will dramatically decrease. Like that is surely going to happen, but there's such a massive growth in the overall crypto market cap, I, I have a hard time predicting the overall impact. Over the Labor Day weekend, China's central bank imposed a blanket ban on ICOs, declaring them illegal and calling for a related fundraising activity to stop. The bank lumped ICOs in with pyramid schemes and demanded that those who had already run ICOs return investors' cash. As a result, the cryptocurrency market, which includes Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin, fell 20% in two days, but has mostly since recovered. So, uh, I guess that leads to my next question, which is, how or uh, whether the industry of ICOs should be regulated or I guess, you know, because I mean, I can totally see, you know, just on the broader subject of ICOs and governance, how can the community prevent things like insider trading and ensure that these founders are building a product or building value and prevent somebody from holding an ICO from running away with the money? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge question. I, th I don't think anyone's answered that question. We are in very new territory here. And the problem also is that a lot of the investors, as I mentioned, and movements are global. So, so I, I, I quickly can say I don't know. I think what's critical right now is for everyone to realize that if they decide to take their hard-earned investment dollars and put it into the crypto space, the first thing to note is it is as high risk as it gets. Right? This is an extremely high-risk asset class, potentially the most high-risk. And if you thought Bitcoin was risky, ICOs are substantially more risky. I believe that if somebody wants crypto exposure and they decide to take some portion of their net worth and put it into crypto, they need to think about it from a diversification perspective. The same way if someone came to me and said, I'd love to put money into startups, I would highly recommend they have conservative dollars into other assets and they should never put it into one startup. They should put it into lots of startups and they should diversify because they'll never pick the perfect one. And it certainly is great right now that the market's growing and everybody seems to be seeing appreciation. But the reality is that will continue to at some point. So what I'm most concerned about beyond the potential insider trading and fraud or anything, I'm just I'm just concerned that. You know, hardworking investors and Americans don't lose their retirement dollars due to bad crypto investing. And so I think we just have to always be aware that we can't make it. We can't we have to do our best to avoid people losing capital and do our best to make sure that if people are putting capital into this market, they can do it as accredited investors that understand the risks associated with such. So I'm guessing Sciences ICO presale coming up will only be open to accredited investors? Correct. In the U.S., you will have to be an accredited investor in order to participate in our ICO. We've chosen that to comply with the Reg D exemption, 
and we think it's also just the, the right answer. Um, and presuming that the the, to- the science tokens or really anybody's um, ICOs tokens are tradable, how do you prevent somebody who isn't accredited from acquiring those tokens? I mean, I, I, I'm not sure yet. I would say that a lot of the exchanges that are based in the U.S. are beginning to deploy solutions that um, allow for monitoring of, of accreditation. I think everyone's thinking about that. I'd also say that one, one kind of good thing right now is that participating in an ICO is complicated. It is um, difficult. It's technical. And um, generally, I think that, you know, you, you have to really commit to it. So I'm happy right now that there's some level of technical barriers for that level of participation. It's not that it's insurmountable, but it's not as simply as just logging into E-Trade and, and, and buying some tokens. So I think that's probably good. Um, but generally, I think that in the future, I think that we're all going to look to solutions that you know are similar to uh, the way other money moves, where you where you look for levels of KYC and AML and, and accreditation for potential investors. Definitely. Uh, so I guess uh, away from the sort of <laughs> risk and doom and gloom, I, I guess on the optimism side. Uh, so outside of the uh, Bitcoin's use as like a currency or. I guess uh, much more these days is perhaps like a store of value and, and Ether for ICOs. Most of the real-world applications of crypto seem mostly theoretical or at least speculative. In, in your opinion, what are the most exciting possibilities that tokens unlock? I mean, on one hand, you know, when I think let's, – let's start with the blockchain. There are certain technology problems as it relates to client-server relationships that have yet to be solved. And it's potential that the blockchain – methodology can solve those problems. That's super interesting. The second piece is having a system of irrevocable and trust-oriented transfer of digital IP um, is super interesting. It allows you to build a lot of things or potentially build a lot of things that we haven't even thought of yet um, on a global basis. So I think the blockchain itself as a technology layer um, opens up some new possibilities that we have yet to see. That's very, very exciting. The second piece is if you're in a country where you have low uh, confidence in your banking or fiat or investment systems, uh, cryptocurrency as a store of value um, potentially makes a lot of sense. So I think that's also very exciting. It's less exciting maybe if you're in the U.S., but more exciting if you're in different markets. The third piece is the ability to build something where you have some level of an easy transfer of value, whether it's through an exchange or a person-to-person through the tokenization of some sort of digital asset, that's also fairly exciting, right? And will change the way that maybe we build certain components of technology. So I think there's layers to this. There's value in all sorts of these different layers that apply to different people and different populations in potentially different countries. And, and you know what we're trying to sort through are people that are just attaching bad concepts to the blockchain in order to justify an ICO versus companies that actually have a legit use of the blockchain, and thus an ICO makes logical sense for their business. Definitely. Uh, is there an industry that you think blockchain will affect or disrupt that nobody's talking about at the moment? Not, not maybe that nobody's talking about. I think that, you know, I think that one thing we can all admit is that in the consistent evolution of these technology-driven startups that have disrupted a lot of the industries that we've all been watching, whether it's transportation or commerce or brands or information or media, you know, banking has always been somewhat protected. Suddenly, you have to ask yourself, are we witnessing the protocol, the methodology that will disrupt, you know, potentially the largest, if not the largest industry globally, which is banking. And um, it felt like, although we saw Amazon 
essentially destroy retailers and change the nature of brands. And we saw Uber and Lyft rise up to change the nature of transportation. We have yet to see a single behemoth rise up to take on traditional banking and global the global fiat system. But we suddenly have you know, a cryptocurrency market worth over $160 billion that if we looked at as a single startup, you have a $160 billion market cap startup that is attacking every aspect of fintech at every angle globally at the same time. Um, it's the most logical use and the current use of you know blockchain and Bitcoin and many of these other tokens. And so I think you have to assume that fintech is the primary target. So actually, that's a, a really interesting. Do you think fintech will be uh, the primary sort of gateway to making the blockchain and tokens and, and ICOs even available to the general population? How do you mean? I, I guess... Uh, my question is, I'm curious about how it gets to everybody. Like right now, it's very, it seems very much like of an insider uh, industry and, and market. How do normal people, how will normal people sort of access blockchain worldwide? So global adoption of it. So I think I, I have a feeling what will happen will uh, initially people will be their transfers and their dollars may be touching the blockchain, but they may not be aware of it. So I think there'll be uh, companies like Ripple and other startups that will facilitate the transfer value between countries and different banks, et cetera, that will allow the use of blockchain without people knowing that they have a wallet or not knowing that they are on the blockchain, right? I think there's, um, there's certainly some commercial entities today accepting Bitcoin. So if you do own this, this uh, store of value, uh, you, can, you, you can spend it. I do question the same thing you just said, which is at what point does a person know they suddenly have a digital wallet and that's holding things of value to them that they can trade or exchange? And that's something we think a lot about because certainly the B2B case of blockchain is everywhere and easy to find and easy to discover. One big question is, yeah, what is the breakout consumer-facing application of such that really brings the world to understand the value of this technology? Absolutely. I, I think it's... Uh... Early days, certainly right now, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the blockchain itself and, and ICOs uh, evolves and who the winners and losers are going to be. And uh, I'm, it's a very exciting technology that I'm, I'm super bullish about. So that wraps up, I guess, my, my uh, you know, normal block of questions. I'd like to move on to uh, the quickfire round, uh, similar to, to other pods, <laughs> and, uh, you know, get your, get your thoughts. So um, traditionally, I'll start off with, uh, you know, your favorite book. My favorite book right now is, uh, is Ready Player One. If you haven't read it, it's like a phenomenal view into the future of AR and VR, or maybe primarily VR. And, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is putting together a film on it now. It's going to be, I hope, I, I'm hoping the film's phenomenal, but the book itself, uh, really I felt like showed me a version of the future, good or bad, that feels highly realistic. And so I'm, you know, I'm really fascinated with it. Having been the CEO of MySpace, what is one band or artist that you would travel 500 miles to see? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, I'll be honest. I, I mean, I, I love bands and artists, but putting me on a, you know, getting me to travel 500 miles is very, very hard. Um, I'm, I'm not sure there's one that I would, would I tra I'd travel to do that with. It'd probably be whatever my wife or my children's favorite band would be. I'd probably travel for them. <laughs> Uh, being the CEO of another company, if you could be the CEO of any company for one day, what company would that be and why? You know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't think I have a clean answer to that right now. I mean, cer certainly I spent a lot of time trying to understand the movements behind behind Snapchat, thinking how they 
you know, play out this war they're facing with Facebook. And certainly my history with MySpace leads me to very be very interested in that war. So I think a lot about that. But I'm lucky that I could probably spend time with their management team and talk to them. So I probably don't want or need to be the CEO of that journey to figure that out. Um, you know, second, I don't know. There's always interesting companies doing amazing things. You know, I'll tell you, I love the esports sector right now. You know, I think Riot Games is phenomenal. Um, I'd love to understand the interior metrics of, of, of gamers at that scale. So yeah, there's a lot. lot there's there's probably a few companies I'd, I'd be interested in looking under the covers on. So actually, uh, segueing from there, what companies have you passed on but wish you had made the investment? Uh, I mean, you know, we 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 knew Snapchat at the earliest days. We didn't look at investing at them. And we, we didn't really have the opportunity until maybe their B or C round. At that point, we weren't able to invest mainly because it was such a high price. It wouldn't really fit with our investment criteria. Um, but um, certainly, I would have loved to put money into Snapchat. And finally, what do you collect, if anything, and why? You know, I collect some, uh, you know, I do a lot of traveling and, um, and I love to travel with my family and we collect certain posters and print materials from different countries we go to that we think represents the kind of current theme of the culture there. And so we have a small collection of, of documents and, and papers and posters that we found in these different places. They're not as bold as saying it's art. It's not really art. It's almost just like, um, like it could be scraps of graffiti. It could be things that we think represent the current cult- cultural times there. And then I, you know, and then I collect hopefully great memories of my kids, right? The, the most important thing to collect right now. Definitely. And that wraps up the quickfire round. I'd like to give you the opportunity uh, and the platform to plug anything that you like. Right now, um, you know, I spend a lot of time with a group we have here called Mammoth Media. They're very focused on, um, on an application called Yarn, which is a kind of Netflix for millennials. It's like imagine a, a 30 to 45 second entertainment sessions, uh, really fast vertical format, and they're doing extremely well. Um, I spent a lot of time with my team at Prey. Prey is doing a privatized community solution for churches and, and, and religious institutions and, uh, and spiritual leaders, and they're seeing incredible, uh, exciting adoption and usage on a really personal level that I'm really excited about. Um, we have a handful of other really great startups. I mean, you know, Ernie for me has been a long time, you know, company as you mentioned, where they, you know, it like feels like every day I get some ping from Ernie on, on cash they <laughs> save me through a transaction. There's nothing like you know giving away free money to make people love your brand. So th- those are some things I, I, I think I think a lot about. Um, Science has a bunch of other stuff that hasn't really been full publicly released that I'm excited about. But those three in particular, I'm I'm happy about. Very cool. Well, Mike, yeah. I. I'd really like to thank you for taking the time to join me on the podcast today and, and sharing your story and really digging into the science blockchain ICO. You not only educated my audience, but myself as well um, about ICOs and cryptocurrencies and why they're worth paying attention to. I've been a really big fan of yours for a very long time, dating way back to the GUI and, and user plane days, and very excited for the impending success of your IPO and science at large. Sounds great. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time. And I appreciate all the good questions. Absolutely. And with that, you've been listening to Mike Jones, co-founder and CEO of Science Inc. on the VentureForth podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe to the VentureForth podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. 
You can also follow at VentureForthPod on Twitter for our latest updates. As always, I'm your host, Joe Mahavutivani, and thank you for listening to the VentureForth Podcast.